0: Welcome back to episode 24 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the podcast where we go along with our chronological Bible reading plan. We talk about next week's readings and answer any questions that you've sent in. Uh, Once again, I've not received any questions, and that is okay. We know that a lot of you are listening. We also know that a lot of you are a few weeks behind, and that is okay. When When you get caught up or when you have questions, please don't be afraid to send them in. Also, we are blessed today, once again, to have a very special guest with Deacon John Norlin. How you doing, John? I'm doing okay. John is actually our Deacon Chair at Calvary, and he has been for... Uh, seven years, something like that? A while now. About time for a year
1: of Jubilee in there, something like
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we're very thankful for John. John is also a very knowledgeable man about the Bible, and I'm very glad that we're going to be able to... Uh, talk today. Our readings for today are going to be from the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. But um, before we get into that, we should explain that Ben is still on vacation to Hawaii, that poor fellow, um, suffering for Jesus, and he should be back next week, and then he'll be gone again in July. But can I tell you something that happened? I have discovered something on the calendar, John, that I don't remember putting there and I don't remember Ben telling me about and it says Ben remote working from the 19th to the 24th of June I think Ben just decided he didn't want to come in for a week and just scribbled something on the calendar.
1: I don't think we talked about Hmm, it at all. I don't specifically remember that either (laughs) in in June, right? So the next Uh month, okay.
0: Yeah, so uh, Pastor Ben is probably listening. And here's the thing. It's very likely (laughs) that he told me and I have forgotten. But I also think it's possible that in his wiliness, he just came in, wrote it down on the calendar and hoped that when it got there, I'd be like, oh, that's why Ben's not here. I guess he's remote working all week. (laughs)
1: Well, in the post-pandemic era, remote working has become a standard for a lot mm. of us.
0: You know, that's true. That's true. So I have no idea what that's about. However, um, we will have him back next week, and then for several weeks, aside from the remote working week, until his mission trip in July. So while we're excited to have him back, we're very glad to have our special guest here. Um, should we uh, should we tell everyone about the the text message you sent me this week, John?
1: Oh yeah. So you know, in the last week's sermon, you uh, you referred to David's wife, uh, McCall. That's uh-huh. how I pr- pronounce her name, and how she was, uh, what's the right word, critical <laughs> nope. of the way David. Uh, As an understatement, we could say critical. Critical the way that David was dressed and <laughs> acting in front of the the parade with the ark and, and so on. So um, yesterday, or two days ago, sorry, being Memorial Day, uh, they had the Memorial Day parade, which went from our house. And of course, we had some of the uh, others from our, our family and church family in our front yard watching the parade. And I dug out of the back of my closet a flag shirt that went to assure that she had, like, lost. She had, quote, unquote, lost. Or I had lost. But anyway, I discovered it in the back of the closets I put on. And of course, I had a originally an orange and black Washington hat, so the orange and the red clash. And mm. and uh, she turned and looked at me, and she said, uh, yeah, um, she had great sympathy for Michael, in her <laughs> opinion. So I texted Pastor Clayton, and uh, your response mm. was hilarious as well.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think that um, not every god is worth being undignified for. So, yeah. I'm not sure that the American flag is a god we would worship. That isn't what you were doing, but that was funny.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was I was being a bit ridiculous for a parade and not not for a uh, religious reason. Mm.
0: Wendy, though, I love her wit. I don't yeah. get to hear as much of it as I would like yeah. to. She's funny. Yeah. Well,
1: her, her other follow-up was that it's you know, a day for remembering the dead. It's not like the 4th of July or some other big patriarch holiday that where, I, where I should be wearing a flag shirt. So, it, oh. so yeah, it's a day to, to remember the dead. And she said, if I'm going to honor the dead by wearing a shirt like that, I'm not allowed at her funeral. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well... <laughs> I don't know what to say to that other than, again, your wife is hilarious. Well, statistically, she'll die after me, not before. That's but, probably you know. true. Okay. That's something for us to think about with Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes. when we get to in, For our readings next week, we'll be reading mostly out of two books, the Song of Songs and the Book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the Song of Songs may be the most controversial book in the Bible. The traditional view is that it was either written by Solomon and his first beloved, where it was written for his first wedding. The song is a series of love poems about two people who are anxious to be married and to be intimate. It's beautiful poetry, capturing well the tremendous feelings of two youths overwhelmed by their love for each other. The reason the song has been so controversial is because we don't really know what to do with it. Questions like, why did the Holy Spirit lead the church to include this book in the Bible? Or, what benefit is the church supposed to receive from it, have been asked since the church's beginning. And a lot of answers have been given. But I want to share three with you briefly that I think all have some merit, and then I'm sure we can talk about them more. The first reason that some people suggest that Song of Songs is in the Bible is to destigmatize sex in marriage. Scripture tells us to wait until marriage to have sex. So Christians wait their entire life before they're married, practicing telling themselves no, and may struggle once the marriage ceremony is over with all of a sudden now saying yes. Since sex was bad for their life up to this point, it may still feel like it's bad afterwards, and the song is there to show us that sex within the confines of marriage is good and holy and gives glory to God. A second reason some people suggest that the Song of Songs is in the Bible is related to the first one, but is, is different in an important way. The idea is that it actually gives us a picture of what sexuality without sin would look like. The two lovers in the book are passionately desiring to have one another, and they know that each of them belongs to the other within the confines of marriage, so we have a holy desire expressed, and it provides readers with a picture of what it can look like and can be strived for in a marriage. So, the first two ideas both seem to, or both kind of, circulate around the idea of sex, which is the general, the the clear topic of the book of Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. But the third reason has been the primary way of reading the Song of Songs for most of the church's history, all the way up until the 19th century, and that is as an allegory. The idea here is that the two lovers symbolize either the two natures in Christ, the divine and human coming together, or they symbolize Christ with his church, or they symbolize the individual believer's encounter with God's Holy Spirit. I suspect that there's something important in all of all three of these, but even if I'm wrong, there's one thing I'm absolutely certain of. The book may be called Song of Solomon in your Bible, but that's a modern invention. For most of history, it was called the Song of Songs, or the Canticle, Canticle of Canticles, which comes from the very beginning of the book. In the same way they that the Holy of Holies is the most important place in the temple, or that the King of Kings rules over the others, the Bible tells us that out of all the songs in the Bible, the Psalms and the songs scattered throughout the narratives, this one is superior to the others in some way. And because of that, we should pay it very close attention.
1: What do you think? Yeah, I I think you hit on some of my my key thoughts about the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is... Um, It's a little awkward to figure out what to do with. I know, like, as a kid growing up in church, (laughs) you don't cover this in kids Sunday school. And somewhere around junior high, you kind of discover it. And, of course, all the junior high guys are laughing about it. You know, know, obviously the the topic is – and you've been a junior high youth uh, pastor, and I've been a junior high youth sponsor. Uh-huh. So I've also seen high school
0: boys and college young men all giggle at this book. Giggle because... and
1: laugh and don't no, quite don't do that. So I think there's that piece of this kind of like, okay, this is in the Bible. What do we do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a, a related thing is that just is very clearly, you know, this was good romantic language for the time, with some of the... Some of the wording of these things just just don't quite ring true. And just just as experiment, yeah. noise I was coming up. I, I said to Wendy the other day, uh, "Your your hair is like a flock of goats coming down from Gilead, and your teeth are like mm. uh, freshly washed sheep coming up from the from the shearing." And, and
0: tell me how she just fell into your arms. Oh
1: yeah, she kind of gives me a strange look. And, of course, knowing her song is Solomon, she gave me some. Uh, Wise, wise remark I think something along I washed my hair so it doesn't smell like a flock of goats or something mm. to that effect but you know and, and her teeth were not fuzzy like sheep but you know but it's not Yeah, you know, we don't usually say your, your temples are like pomegranates your neck is like the Tower of David that's not our modern love language
0: no that's not um, that's not usually how we talk today but the language is rich the poetry yeah. itself oh, the love rich. poetry is rich and full and it if you're someone who likes poetry, even apart from the the spiritual benefits of the book, it is just beautiful love poetry written for a different time in a different culture, but you can you are kind of pulled in to the the emotions, mostly of the woman. It is mm-hmm. most of the lines come from her mm-hmm. in the in the Song of Songs. And that's interesting in its own way that she is the focus, not not him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But you are just sort of pulled in and you can feel the excitement And love and desire that she has for the beloved.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you you hit on the other question that we we sometimes have around this book of uh, Solomon has a lot of wives, a lot of concubines, Uh hundreds and hundreds. I forget the exact number is uh, that it has uh, for him. And uh, so the question is, well, should we be taking love advice from someone who has (laughs) so many different wives? I mean, it's. Hmm. It's, it's awkward. Yeah, I, I think back to when I was a young man engaged to be married and, and my mother was trying to give me advice. And I remember thinking, should someone who's been you know married and divorced twice be giving me advice? And, you know, it's kind of like, should a man with hundreds of wives be giving me love advice? <laughs> that's yeah, that's a good question. real question. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think I think one of the important ideas here or possibilities is that this was written for Solomon's first marriage by someone else. It was right. part of the wedding ceremony, right? right? And I think that that is an important possibility because... It it would be strange for this to actually be a thing that Solomon and his bride and her friends sat down and wrote, because mm-hmm. I don't know how that would work. You know, mm-hmm. as we prepare for our wedding, and then several times throughout, we're going to sit down and write this together. By the way, get some of your friends and let's figure out what they have to say. Um, I suspect that the poetry was written as part of the wedding ceremony. What right. do you, What do you think? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say, and I guess you know there are several references to the daughters of Jerusalem, and so there's other people obviously referenced in the poem. I guess something that stuck out to me uh, reading it, again, here was in chapter 6, like in verse 8, it says, 60 queens there may be and 80 concubines and virgins beyond number, but my dove is the perfect one, is unique. So, so it's referring to maybe Solomon already does have other queens oh, at this point. or that could be. Or uh, the other thought on this, I think, is because... Uh, if you follow the flow of the book, at least the headings of my study Bible back in chapter four, talk about the consummation of the marriage uh-huh. and then the honeymoon going into chapter five. So maybe it's you know later and she's one among many queens later, but yeah. she was still the first wife earlier. The, the plot
0: of the story is difficult to ascertain if there is indeed a plot. I mean, yeah. we each one seems to be a set of love poems um, of the, the woman, either on her own or or in this back and forth. And if you just try to track a storyline, it becomes difficult. But that may be. It may be that it starts as at the beginning and then at the end, she's one of many and yet still loves her husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really. If that's the case, then one of the things that we would have to wrestle with or. And, and we've talked about this briefly on the podcast before is the issue of many wives. Happening with Solomon. Uh, we see it with David as well. We see it all the way back with mm-hmm. with Abraham taking Hagar, not as a wife, but mm-hmm. as a concubine. And then we, I mean, through the patriarchs, we see multiple wives, and that just kind of becomes more and more a thing. And then Solomon is really the pinnacle.
1: Yeah, he has right? the most, yes. Oh, my word, yes. Yeah. Uh, is it a thousand wives? I, I want to say it's only 300 wives and 300, a thousand concubines. concubines yeah. My, that's a large number, hundreds, hundreds. It's a lot. Yeah. Like,
0: if he was with one every night, a different one, it'd be years between between seeing them, and that the absurdity of that is is right. something that's hard to wrap your mind around. Well,
1: and so, obviously, a lot of them were political marriages. You know, we have the, right. the uh, Pharaoh's daughter is one of the prominent ones sure. that he built the house for. Talks about in the uh, in the Kings and Chronicles writing. Uh, I do think you know Solomon. You know, towards the end of life, his, all his foreign wives and their, the temples that they build to their gods or the, the high places they build for their gods becomes a distraction. And you know, what, one of the things and this, I guess, applies to both Song of Solomon's and Ecclesiastes. I know I've known Christians, and in my uh, uh, former, uh, I shouldn't say former, my uh, now-deceased father-in-law uh, is one of them who kind of discounted Solomon his writings because he goes bad at the end of his life with, you know, Um, and and would say oh yeah disregard those and it's kind of the whole good king bad king thing we see it all through kings and chronicles you you know good king bad king good king bad king it's kind of like well Saul was a bad king David was a good king and so then Solomon again is a bad king well but actually he's in a pretty positive light, it seems like. He's other in a very positive light, the light. End, yeah. and then he
0: goes wrong at the end.
1: Yeah, the wrong at the end. So can you discount, well, everything in Ecclesiastes, everything in Song of Solomon, everything in Proverbs, You know, three whole books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You'd have to kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater if you think that Solomon isn't worth reading because of that.
0: Yeah, the Bible certainly thinks that Solomon is worth reading. If, yeah. if you don't, then you are saying something that the Holy Spirit is not willing to say that yeah. the man's words don't have meaning. Yeah. So what do you think of the idea? I mentioned the allegory yeah. as a possible thing to do with song of solemn mm-hmm. song of songs. And as I read modern commentators today, almost universally negative among evangelical Bible commentators, mm-hmm. the idea of this being allegorical or intended that way is, is just let go of. In fact, mm-hmm. I was speaking with one of my former Bible college professors who I really, really highly respect, and he had nothing positive to say about the idea of this being an allegory. And I'd love to just John Norlin is one of our deacons. I'd love to know what you think about that.
1: Yeah, I guess I, I've never really personally interpreted it allegorically. You know, mm-hmm. I've just seen this as as kind of as written as a love poem and so on. I guess we, we do get into the you know the different versions you know ideas for love and I, there's multiple Greek words for love. Of course, we we're talking about Hebrew, not Greek here, but you know the concepts and what's really emphasized in the New Testament, right, is more the agape love, the Mm -hmm. selfless love, the the non-romantic love. And I think in our society in in general, we tend to be over-sexualized as a society. Mm -hmm. Everything from television commercials to magazines to movies to whatever it is, you know, media is just over-sexualized right now. And so in our society, there tends to be a over-attachment of love concepts to, you know, it's called eros love, or you know, r- romantic, or sexual love, and it's like no, 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 no. There's whole, there's the whole agape love. So I think as a New Testament reading and believing Christian, we tend to kind of shy away from the romantic, almost to the point of, gosh, why is this romance stuff in our Bible at Uh all? (laughs) So it it feels a little bit like almost icky to think of this as like Christ in the church or Christ Christ Mm -hmm. within the Trinity or something. Because that's not not romantic love. That's not physical sexual love. That's agape, selfless love. And so it's a different kind of love.
0: Except that the picture of Christ and his bride is, is symbolized by heaven and earth coming together and becoming one in the end of the Bible. Right. We, we do get that. I mean, the, the beginning of the Bible tells Mm -hmm. us that the two will become one and then the end of the Bible shows the two becoming one and Christ and his bride are part of that.
1: Yeah. But I think also, you know, and, and there's a lot of things we don't know about the new heaven and the new earth and sure, all that. Be. Sure, You know, it's, it's like the question Jesus was asked about, well, whose wife is the... Ooh, is the, the Leverite question. The, yeah. yeah, the Leverite question, the one that had multiple, uh, been married multiple times. It's like, you don't understand. Yes. <laughs> you know, and some people take that to mean, oh, there is no romantic love in the afterlife. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's, just, it's different. It, it may understand. be, but that's
0: not what Jesus was saying.
1: That's not yeah. quite what Jesus was saying, but it's like, yeah, it's just... When you're when you're face to face with Jesus and God sitting on His throne in the future heaven, and the future heavens and earth come together. It's like, I don't think that'll be the topic of the question in your mind is who was married to who. Right. <laughs> <That's why it's- laughs>
0: well, I want to I want to talk a little bit about what allegory is yeah. and and why I think that there is value to it with this book in particular. Right. Um, so an allegory is basically the idea is that you you mean something other than what you say. Now, there's there's two different ways of doing this. One way is that you think about certain figures or events in the Bible representing later figures or events in the Bible, right? So we see in Solomon, for example, a picture of of Jesus. You know, there is the, the king of kings connection to Jesus. And Solomon seems to be built up that way, especially in Chronicles, for us to read him as the good king. And then we read that back when we see Jesus. That's a, it's a connection in the Bible. That's not what allegory is. Allegory is when you are talking about one thing, and as you're talking about it, you mean mm-hmm. something else, right? And so we actually do see this several times through scripture. I have a list of them here. We don't mm-hmm. We don't need to go through them. If anyone is dying of curiosity, or if John is dying of curiosity, we could do that. But one of the things that we see through the Bibles in the prophets, it happens in Psalms, we see it in even in the Gospels, we see this picture of allegory. The parables are mm-hmm. something like allegory, right? Mm-hmm. So allegory on the whole isn't bad right. biblically. Okay. And when the the early church encountered this book, it wrestled with it in the same way that we do, especially because most of the Christian leaders were monks.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, you know, they were people who were who lived their lives saying no to, to sex. This wasn't a a thing that they were ever going to experience. And so one of the things that attracted them to this book, I imagine is the total absence of that in their lives, right? Mm. It it had the, the appeal of something that was a little bit, a little bit off limits, but it was in the book, right? Mm. Just like a junior high or high school boy, right? right? There's, there's something to that there. But also, as they read this book, they saw over and over and over again these pictures of of things that related for them very easily to these big theological concepts. And so from, I think, the, the second century all the way down until about 200 years ago or 150 years ago, it was nearly universal to read Song of Solomon this way. And they believed, especially the early church fathers, that there were different levels of meaning in the Bible. So there was a like a surface level meaning, which is exactly what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the destigmatizing of sex or the picture of a, a non sinful sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, and they believed that that was true and real and part mm-hmm. of it. But they believed that God was capable of putting layers of meaning into a story. Mm-hmm. And so there was the spiritual meaning that was beyond that. And it took a person of great maturity um, to have that revealed to them by the Spirit. And so while people would have some divergences in, you know, two different people would allegorize something differently, those most of the time did not contradict. And they believed that that's because they were spirit given. And so the other, the reason why I think this was so appealing, I looked through my commentaries on uh, Song of Solomon chapter one, verse two, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. And in my commentaries, I get a line about how kisses were a sign of peace and friendship in, in ancient times, and that wine was weaker than wine is today. But I read the first five of Bernard of Clairvaux, a 12th or 13th century um, spiritual leader, in a Christian spiritual leader, who preached through the Song of Solomon, and his first five sermons are on chapter one, verse two. He doesn't get through it for five sermons. And he's, he's just pulling out this meaning and they are beautiful sermons. And so the, there's a rich spiritual reservoir that the church has found in this book through the practice of allegory. And so I think that's okay. And I think that often when we read parts of the Bible, we will be led to think of other things. I know that when I, when I taught youth group, we went through Joshua, you know, the battles, mm-hmm. I allegorized those battles to talk about our resistance to sin and the the spiritual mm-hmm. battle. And, and I don't think that's wrong, but I, I'd love your feedback and disagree with me if you'd like
1: to. Oh, yeah, I I, I think it's, I think it's fair. I think the, the challenge with reading anything allegorically is, you know, like I said, you can come up with different meanings depending on how you, how you take it, what you take symbols uh, to mean. And, you know, it's this isn't prophecy, right? But I know, like in prophecy, when we try to read symbols and prophecy, that's where we get all sorts of strange things. Sometimes of you know, people predicting a certain date, that a certain event is going to happen, or a certain thing clearly means something, and then history says, "Oh, wait, actually, maybe it didn't mean that." And so, uh-huh. so you know, allegories—you really have to be sure that this is what the spirit's telling you. I guess if you're going to read something allegorically, is absolutely is, is the And there's some things like you know, when Jesus gives a parable and then explains there, the parable's fairly clear what it's alluding to. Or even says, you know, this is like this. You know, the the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, or something. And that's pretty clear what his allegory is. It's not mm-hmm. hidden, not hidden at all. But, it's
0: not uh, hidden. You're right, yeah. and that's that matters.
1: But, well, in this case, yeah, it's, it is hard to say. Yeah, what does the kiss mean? What does the wine mean? It could, yeah, you could. So yeah, a good preacher I'm sure could yeah, pull a good mm-hmm. allegorical story on that. It could be an awesome sermon. But it's like, ah, but is that what it's really saying? I think that's where my you know, maybe it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, uh, and
0: so they would also say that this was this was for the mature. This wasn't yeah. for new Christians. This was for people that were into the spiritual life and could wrestle with some of these concepts. Mm-hmm. And again, you can disagree with them completely. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, uh, if anybody wants it, I've got the the sermons of Bernard of Clairvaux, and I've got several mm-hmm. other works, and they're just beautiful. This was by far the most um, frequently commentated on book through most of the church's history. When when people would write commentaries, it was here they focused most. Origin of Alexandria wrote two or three on it. Almost every major name for about 1,500 years wrote a commentary on the Song of Solomon Mm. talking about the allegory. There are a few exceptions. Augustine didn't write one Uh, Calvin didn't write one, but most of the others did.
1: Interesting interesting to study up on that and see what what they say. I do
0: want to take us to one specific verse. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4. So as you read this book, you may find there are several places, actually, where there are words that we sing in songs. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is in those songs, we are allegorizing. Mm -hmm. There's no question whatsoever. So... I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 from chapter 2. It's for, the, it's for the woman. And these divisions, he, she, and the friends, those are our best guesses. They're not in the text, right? They're, they're the best guesses that we have as to who's supposed to be speaking. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. So what's happened before this, all the, all the ideas before this have been talking about, like there's a vineyard and there's fruit and there's heavy drinking. Mm-hmm. And then this appears to be thinking about the consummation of the wedding night. And so one of the, one of the things that's so interesting to me is what we are singing about, the phrase that we're singing, if we don't use it as a symbol, Mm-hmm. then basically we are lifting up this woman who is drunkenly looking forward to
1: her her wedding night. Consummation of her marriage, yeah. And that just seems like a bizarre... Yeah, his banner over me is love. Right, but man, it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good line. It's a good line. Yeah, because you know, God loves us, and God's banner over us is also love. But, yes, in, in taking out of context, so if it's not alcohol, it's a really weird thing to be seen about yep. God.
0: Yes. Yep, yep, it's just a weird thing. Yep.
1: Do you have any other thoughts or questions well, about songs? Well, I guess that got me thinking. A lot of uh, contemporary music, um, contemporary Christian mm. worship songs do kind of veer towards the love song type variety, and some people are great with that and some people are like that's weird that's weird that's weird and so and we do do have we have some of those uh he is jealous for me type of songs that uh-huh. are just uh, some some people resonate with them and some people are like uncomfortable with them
0: yes absolutely you know, loves,
1: well love songs to jesus
0: and a lot of those i mean a yeah. lot of them come from the song of solomon yeah. um in chapter two verse 16 is another one that comes a lot of the times in songs my beloved is mine and i am his or i am my beloved and he is mine is uh is a phrase I've heard repeatedly in worship songs. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I didn't make a list of these, but there are several.
1: Yeah, I think I noticed a couple others as going through. I, don't, I, I did spot a few of them. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So my suggestion,
0: dear listener, is as you read through the Song of Songs, first of all, recognize that it is not meant to be put to the side, right? Whatever we're supposed to do with it, I think that putting it aside is not it because mm-hmm. it is called the song of songs. It is the, the chief of the songs in the Bible for a reason. I mean, that's right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we're supposed to find something very valuable here. Mm-hmm. And if you have any thoughts other than what we've talked about as far as possible value from this book, I would love to hear from you about it. Okay, we're moving on to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the last book in what is traditionally called the Wisdom Literature, along with Proverbs, Job, song, and Song of Songs. Like the other Wisdom books, with the exception of Job, Ecclesiastes has traditionally been credited to Solomon. And like the Song and Proverbs, it is a completely unique book in the Bible. If you have to pick a genre for Ecclesiastes, it's part of something called pessimism literature in the ancient world. And the tone it takes, which is often pessimistic, strikes us as very strange. It's not what we expect to find in our Bible. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we sit at the feet of the teacher, who takes us on quite a journey. At the end of the journey, we find the same wisdom we are given in the book of Proverbs, that it is in the fear of Yahweh that the beginnings of wisdom are found. But the teacher wants us to be ready for that wisdom when we get to it, and so he talks to us about how far a man can get when he does not prioritize God. We're invited to become Solomon, to sort of put on our Solomon hat and to apply our minds to all these different paths. All these different paths of different values and different pursuits. All of them choosing something besides Yahweh to be the first priority. But, and this is important to note, atheism, while it is present in our world today, was really not present at this time. And so all of these views do still have god in them he's just deprioritized that will be important as we go through it when a man prioritizes himself seeking pleasure or success or profit what happens the disappointment found down those roads prepares our minds and spirits to hear what we already knew when we began that it is in following yahweh that our lives find meaning in the book of ecclesiastes were shown that human beings are not actually capable of making our own meaning or of really understanding the world that we live in. It's too complex and we're too small. And nothing but resting in our Creator can bring happiness. Not the pursuit of wisdom for wisdom's sake, not greed or power or success or pleasure. In the end, the only reasonable thing a person can do is to commit themselves to Yahweh. And that's where wisdom begins. So... What do you what do you think about the so, book of Ecclesiastes? So when you read
1: the book of Ecclesiastes, I guess the first thing that jumps out at you is like I said the pessimism, right? The meaningless, meaningless or vanity, vanity, Ugh. all is vanity, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, all your toil is wearisome, you know, it's you kind of get that pessimistic flair of, ah, I tried this and it was awful. I tried that and it was awful. It was all meaningless. It was all chasing <laughs> the wind. It was all, you know. Mm-hmm. You get that that feeling from it.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's it's what's interesting about it is we struggle with the same kind of idolatry today mm. that he's talking about here. I mean, there's no, there's nothing, ironically, there's nothing new under the sun, right? right? There's none of these are news to us. The pursuit of money, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of wealth, mm. I already said money, but yep. of pleasure, none of it is mm. is new today. And all of it was known then, and all of it is explored in the book of Ecclesiastes as a, meaningless pursuit. And I find that fascinating.
1: And even, you know, doing great things, you know, great building projects he talks about in here. You know, I think of our our billionaires today, our you know, our Bill Gates's and Elon Musks and so on. It's like, well I'll build our rocket ship and send it to Mars and do all these great things. And in the end, you know, it's all still pretty meaningless without God. <laughs> hmm
0: That's exactly right. Even wisdom without God is well, it's not wisdom. It's meaningless. But I want to I take a look at one of these, and let me see here if I can find. Yeah, so I'm actually going to read a few verses, if that's okay, and yep. then we can kind of dive into it. This section from chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through, um, well, through the end of chapter 3, but we're probably not going to read that whole thing. We'll do it mm-hmm. in bits. This section gets, I think, I think there's some important things here, and then some of this section gets very misunderstood.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, toil is meaningless is how my Bible begins the heading. I'm going to read the end of chapter 2. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish? Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless." So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless." A person can do no better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering up and storing wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless as chasing after the wind. Okay. What I think we do wrong when we read Ecclesiastes a lot is we, we forget that we are, we are putting on the Solomon hat, and exploring a different priority all the way to the end. And that priority is not an atheistic one, right? Mm-hmm. God is involved in it. So we read about the the meaninglessness of toil. The person is going to work and work and work. And it's futile feud- because you're just going to give it away to someone else.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then this verse in 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment? we think that that is solomon telling us a truth because we see those kinds of things over and over again and and john i don't i don't think that's what this is i think what's happening here is he's saying if you take on the idea that work is the biggest priority and you follow that all the way to the end the best you're going to do is coming to the idea that well you might as well just find find satisfaction in your toil eat and drink and you know god god can can be part of that too. What do you think? Do you think that that's, are we supposed to read verse 24 as a, a this is from Solomon is a truth, or are we supposed to read that as part of the toil is meaningless? Well, the y-
1: yes and no, because I, I, I think when, when I read this, when I say you, it, you know, if you end with the verse 24, a man can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work, and leave out verse 25, for without him, who can eat or drink or find enjoyment? Mm-hmm. You know, so, it's meaningless without God in it. With God in it it starts to take on meaning.
0: It's, well, it takes on so, yeah. yeah, there's some meaning there's found some meaning for the person foul. who who yeah. values toil. Right. But we have to remember that these are none yeah. of these will be without God. They yeah. they had no idea or no concept of a life in which the divine to- was not totally without part. Without, yeah. And so the idea is if you add a little God to your mm. life of toil, sure, you can find some meaning in there, yeah. but but the best you're gonna do mm. is eating and drinking. And being happy in your work. But then we get this contrast in verse 26. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who does please God. Right. This to his meaningless so chasing after the wind. In other words, there's this divergence of saying, actually, the one who pleases him, the one who, who puts God as the priority, mm-hmm. is going to have wisdom and knowledge and happiness. But the one who does what I just described Mm -hmm. is just going to build it all up and hand it over to someone else. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And we get these Mm -hmm. little interludes all through the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the things that we try to do that we really bang our heads about sometimes is it has Solomon saying some things that we really have to work hard to try to figure out how does this work in a Christian worldview. And Mm -hmm. I think most of the time we struggle is it's because we are, we think that since he started using the word God, Mm-hmm. Now we're, we're hearing real wisdom. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, I think we're supposed to still read that as a negative.
1: Yeah. Well, and it, you know, it's interesting that, you know, his, his point here about the work being meaningless and always having to hand it over to someone else. It's, uh, the, the, thought that comes to mind is, you know, the, the first house that we had, uh, the first house that Wendy and I bought, uh, when we, uh, Moved out of a rental here in Washington, it was an old eighteen seventies farmhouse on Jefferson Street. And we rehabbed that thing, you know, gutted it, you know, wiring insulation, you know, new drywall, the whole nine yards. And Wendy uh, very carefully stripped all the paint off the old double-hung windows and repainted them. We rehung the weights they had opened and closed properly and put a lot of work into that house. And then when we sold the house, the new homeowners Ripped out the old windows oh, and put no. in brand new replacement windows and, and cheap looking ones too. You know, so oh, it's like no. so now every time we drive 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 by our old house, it's like, oh, those ugly replacement windows. You know, all the all the hours of working on that. You oh, know, no. driving, you know, but how but it's, dare they? Right? How dare they? Well They owned it. You know, they they, they bought it. Right? Mm-hmm. But but is that? But in some sense, you know, we have this illusion of permanency in our brain that says, you know, everything is going to be the way it is forever. Well, everything we own will be that way. The house that we live in now was owned by someone else who mm-hmm. did something else to it you know if we build a you know like solomon build huge you know uh, temples and gardens and where they'll all be destroyed sometime you know th- nothing lasts forever on this on this earth that's yeah like everything will be given to someone who may be a fool that's right <laughs>
0: that is- so that moves in that idea moves into chapter three which is the best known of the verses in ecclesiastes and, and if to music <laughs> yes and if we if I'm what I'm about to say breaks your heart because there are a set of verses that you love dearly, um, just ignore me or don't ignore me. Maybe you still feel free to love the verses. Just know a little better about what's probably meant here. So in chapter three, we read, um, there is a time for everything. And what's interesting is the heading is even a time for everything. In mm-hmm. a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Time to kill and a time to heal, to tear down, to build, to weep and to laugh, to mourn and to dance, to scatter stones and to gather them, to embrace and to refrain from embracing, to search and to give up, to keep and to throw away, to tear and to mend, to be silent and to speak, to love and to hate, for war and for peace. And so this gets used, even my my counselor loves this verse and has quoted parts of it to me many times as a source of comfort. What I think is pretty clearly happening in the book of Ecclesiastes is the author is taking us through things that are futile. They're futile pursuits. And one of the things that is a futile pursuit is thinking that you have any control over the future, right? that Every moment of time that you're in is about to be met by a corresponding time of doing something completely different. It's opposite. Right. So -hmm. gathering stones, he's saying, is futile because at some point you're going to be scattering the stones. Mourning is futile because at some point you're going to dance. It's this nothing that you're doing is permanent. Mm -hmm. Now, we can take that and say, take comfort in the fact that time shifts Mm -hmm. and so on. And that's great. And that's true. But what what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is that none of these things provide ultimate meaning because they're all very temporary. What do you, what do you think about
1: that? Yeah, it kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the illusion of permanency. You know, we all create a, you know, create in our own th- way of thinking a, the way things are is the way things should be and the way things will be type of mindset sometimes when especially when times are good, but uh, but yeah, nothing is permanent. I, I know one of my mentors who, since many years ago, passed away from cancer, at one of my mentors at work, um, when we asked something, some change that was happening at work, you know, is this temporary or is this permanent? He kind of got this look on his face. He's like, the only difference between temporary and permanent is if you know the end date. Because <laughs> really, everything's temporary. It's just, if, if I know it ends next year, then it's temporary. If it doesn't have an end date, it's permanent. But permanent is not permanent because right. you know, no company will be around forever. No department within a company will be around forever. No job that you do will be around forever. <laughs> um,
0: I, I'd love to hear, do you have any thoughts about, I've got some more places to take us, but do you have any more questions or thoughts about Ecclesiastes as a whole? Any sections that really draw your eye or interest?
1: No, I, I think yeah, like I said, it, he goes through a lot of things he's he tried. You know, go on to chapter four, or chapter five, you know, different things he's tried. I guess it, you know one of the noteworthy ones is the first part of chapter five, which is like even even worship itself, if, if done wrongly, can be a meaningless pursuit, right? He t- talks about you know, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. So, I mean, just it's like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going and worshiping, but if I'm blabbing on like a fool, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it might not be, it might also be meaningless and chasing the wind if I'm not careful. Yeah.
0: So there's, yeah. Um, Worship is funny because we have all these practices, right? We go to church, for example. And we do that, a lot of us do it every week or we do it, we do it regularly. And what do we accomplish with going to church? Mm-hmm. Well, on its own, we accomplish nothing. Reading your Bible, even praying, mm-hmm. um, worship, these practices of worship are, are not worship when they are just done to be done. Right. Um, we, we, a lot of times, I think, have this idea of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth that if I just do the things, then it's like I'm baking something Right and and the Holy Spirit's then going to take it and cook something and out comes a maturity, right? right? But the 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 way we have to look at all these things is they are tools with which we are building something, and mm-hmm. and so going to church can be, I think, a major and and it is an important part of spiritual mm-hmm. growth and maturity. It does not accomplish spiritual growth and maturity on its own. Neither right. does neither do any yeah. of the others.
1: Yeah, and he's certainly not saying here don't don't worship. He's saying you know, right. be. You know, be careful, guard, guard your steps when you go and don't say foolish things and don't let your mouth. Uh, verse six, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, down in verse seven, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. So we're coming to worship, to stand in awe of God, not to say or do foolish right. things. The
0: pursuit can't be worship. Right. The pursuit is God. And the way we pursue him is through worship yes it's it's it would be like if you have a a problem with your yard not having a barrier between your yard and your neighbor's yard and so your pursuit became buying the very best tools you could get and then you bought all these tools and then you sat back happy with what you had done and never built a fence mm-hmm. right you've you've got all the best tools even even you know you go to like for me going to bible college and seminary i can i can have a really good tool for reading scripture you know i can i can get mm-hmm. into scripture but if that's the if that's the purpose then i've i'm never going to accomplish what i i need to accomplish which is the purity of heart that comes with pursuing god first and foremost mm-hmm. yeah but it is weird to think i i think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how even worship can become an idol
1: yeah because yeah, i was right between uh, like Rafta as a section on riches and before that's a succession a section on political success, right? So it's kind of all wrapped into here is this. You know. mm-hmm.
0: Well, John, do you have anything else on Song of Songs or on Ecclesiastes?
1: Yeah, not really. That. I think I think we, we hit all the high points as far as I, I know.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the thoughts that I had with this is we could go theme by theme through Ecclesiastes yeah. and talk about each of them. But mm-hmm. I don't I mean, that's literally what the book of Ecclesiastes does. And so I yeah. didn't want to rob that from the, the reader's yeah. experience. Uh, do you did you uh think of a way to conclude
1: that you wanted to use? Uh, sure. So let's do Ecclesiastes nine, starting with verse seven. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for as now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningful, meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. That's what I, I right. gave my haircut yesterday. And. Uh... And uh, Ryan was in the chair at uh, Julie Schrock's before me, oh. and so as he greeted me, I said, "Oh, hey, by the way, you're a podcast star now." I'm like what? I'm like well, you are mentioned on the podcast. Oh, you know? that's right. <laughs> like I was. I haven't listened to this week's yet. I <laughs> will have to go listen to that now. <laughs> so, guess, that's so, what we do. we're going to, to start go mentioning people from church, so they all feel like, like they have to listen. Hey Lee, you know you're mentioned the podcast. Hey Dan. Yeah, hey That's funny. Andy, that's a, a good idea. It's a good advertising
0: idea. All right.